0: Hi everyone, Brian here. Before I jump into today's episode, as of the time of this recording, uh, we're likely not even at the peak of the coronavirus crisis, at least here in the US where I record the show. While I think it's important to keep moving forward with our personal and business lives, I didn't feel like I could just release another episode of the show without commenting on the situation. While I know each of you are likely figuring out how you're going to adjust, uh, how you're going to steer your business through the storm, and how you're going to navigate the situation personally, I wanted to suggest to all of you that now is also the time to really serve your customers, community, and the people around you. I've been really impressed with people's generosity online in the last week, whether it's the police in the streets of Spain uh, singing uh, or the Italians singing their anthems from the balconies around six o'clock. And, Uh, Teams forming to create breathing masks and respirators, uh, and the technology initiatives such as uh, Hack Corona uh, and the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition, among others. I myself am trying to assist with some of these initiatives and also recently held a free Ask Me Anything webinar on Crowdcast so that people like us can stick together as we work our way through the situation. Many people around the world are thinking about the "yous" and thems just as much as themselves right now. Which brings me to my last comment. On this show, Experiencing Data, we talk a lot about how empathy is a core element in using human-centered design to create indispensable data products. Well, these acts of giving and volunteering are quite similar. It's about putting somebody else first and asking the questions from their perspective. What's their pain? What's their need? How can our solution serve them? And how might might we improve their future? So as with all of these acts of giving, design is also an act of service that is rooted in empathy. And that's something we should all be thinking about right now. My best to each of you as we work our way through this crisis, and thanks for listening. If you do have a question for me about the show, uh, this situation, or if there's a way I can help, uh, feel free to email me. Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at designingforanalytics.com. And now, here's the next episode of Experiencing Data. You're now Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a special edition of Experiencing Data that's actually not just Experiencing Data today. Uh, Mark, why don't you introduce yourself and tell them what we're doing today?
1: Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Mark Bailey. I'm actually the podcast host for Design for AI. It's another podcast that's in the same space.
0: Yes, excellent. So, we uh, it's just for uh, listeners of experiencing data, um, you know, we, you've you know what my typical uh, guests are like. And uh, I talked to Mark, and we both felt like uh, there was a lot of synergy uh, between our shows. And while typically uh, I don't have designers on the show, I thought uh, Mark had some really good tactical and strategic advice uh, for people looking at user experience and. Uh, Human centered design uh, on a wide variety of different uh, artificial intelligence angles. And so we felt it would be great to just record a conversation that's less host and guest oriented and more just us having a conversation about this space. Uh, And so we're both going to be releasing this episode. So this will be a design for AI episode as well as an experiencing data episode.
1: Yep. And so if you're listening to this on the design for AI side, I would definitely recommend listening to Brian's podcast, Experiencing Data.
0: Likewise, I, I, I recommend uh, for all the Experiencing Data listeners out here too, um, uh, the Design for AI podcast has some really great uh, stuff in it. I've been uh, enjoying uh, actually reading a lot of the transcripts as what I've been doing lately just to kind of dig into some of those topics. So uh, check that out at designforai.com. Um, Mark, I, you know, I took some notes down just to – I just had these ideas in my head about things that I, I think are important for – I don't feel like the product design – community is necessarily thinking about these things. I, I don't know about you. So I thought I would just rattle off kind of my 10 things. We can go one by one if you want. I'd love to just get your reactions to, to some of these uh, these concepts and see if you agree with me or challenge me on them. Uh, what do you think?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. Now that sounds like a great idea.
0: Cool. Well, I'm going to try to give a quick overview of just all 10 of them and then we can run through them the first one here is that, um, and again, I'm thinking about these in terms of of designers, particularly people working on software products, because I'm guessing that's a lot of what the audience is on the design for AI side. Uh, we assume there's an, uh, some kind of application that's gonna be the output of the work or that is the product. So the first one of those is, we still need to be problem first and, and application or product second. So when we're talking about AI and and particularly machine learning, The the point here being that there's not always going to be a software application that is the output of, you know, a machine learning model or something like that. So to me, designers need to be thinking about decision support as being the desired outcome, whatever that may be. So even if you're spinning out an Excel spreadsheet for somebody or, you know, whatever that output necessarily is, uh, that's really what we're trying to do with some of this. The second thing is... um, Trust and adoption is still a challenge, particularly at non uh, non digital native companies. So, getting getting employees and internal users and partners that are uh, supposed to be taking a new version of something that might have been an offline process, and then you know integrating uh, an AI driven solution, we really need to be thinking about these UX principles of adoption and trust of the solution. And I think that's a designers get that. Uh, But that's, that's really something that needs to be factored into uh, the solution space. You know, actually, Mark, let's go, I'm not going to go through all 10 here. They're too long. And I want you to be able to chime in. So let's take those first two right there. Do you agree? I've seen some mixed stuff online about this. Like, do we still need to be problem first oriented with data, you know, with AI? Uh, Based design. Do you agree with that? Or do you think?
1: Oh, yeah, no, definitely Um, So I actually I think this is one of the most important things for designers that are involved in machine learning that they really need to uh, learn the space because a lot of the different uh, Machine learning models out there have different kind of side effects to them. So I could give a really technical answer or um, Just kind of an (laughs) an overview
0: Yeah, I think, I I think keeping it a high level, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure the, you know, how much, one one thing that's tough that's ironically about our podcast, right, is we don't always know exactly who our audience is unless they're, you know, writing into us. So, you know, I kind of took the assumption, none of our audience needs a basic overview of what AI is, where they they all probably get that. They probably know what machine learning is, but maybe they haven't worked on a project uh, before. But this problem first thing still is important. And it's not, what can, how can we use ML for X? You know, that, that's a question that I think constantly needs to be challenged. It's not about, can we use this hammer? It's what is the need? What is the gap? What's the better future we want? And then is ML the right thing for that? Um, Sounds like we're in agreement on that.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, no, I I, totally. Um, So anyway, so what I was going to say is that uh, so once you've defined the problem and you know what the problem is, that really dictates, you know, if you're, so, uh, you know the, the joke is always if you even need to use machine learning um, right. that 's always the first question, and then you know the second one is uh, you know you have to work with the developers, and of course they 're going to be recommending their own um, machine learning model that they like the best or the one that they have the most experience with
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so that's because you know what the problem is, you need to know what the side effects are for that machine learning model. Mm. And so, because there are, I would, you know, I would say there's a good 30 to 40 different types of machine learning models that are, you know, the most popular ones right now. Mm -hmm. And knowing what each one of them is good for as the designer, it really helps to uh, conform the machine learning to the problem instead of vice versa.
0: Right. Without, you know, without going into all of them, can you give like two examples of, of that to a designer so they conceptually can understand, you know, why, why do you need to know about this?
1: Well, sure. So an example would be like, um, so the hot thing right now is, uh, GAN. so this is, uh, it's a machine learning model that generates, um, uh, images or sound or whatever you want. Now you could use this model and it's very broadly based. Um, or if you had, uh, so a different thing would be a transformer model and something like, um, the one that just got really popular, um, GPT two is the, the one that can create text, like, Mm -hmm. and it can just, it sounds like a human is talking, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's very specific. Uh, it just, the way that it works is it looks at the next word and it just tries to predict words so it it spits out a string of text mm-hmm. and it's so it's very narrowly focused mm-hmm. so depending on what your problem is one might be a really good solution or the other one might be mm-hmm. so you know it that 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 would be a good example of that
0: mm-hmm. got it got it so the uh, moving on to the second one and we'll try to get through all these 10 then maybe we can reflect on on some of the the hot ones if we want again that this idea of trust uh, and adoption uh, when we're starting to use these types of solutions that are that can be perceived as black box. We'll get into model interpretability down down the road. I think that's a, an area as well. But um, do you agree that, you know, this empathy for the customer, right, it doesn't go away. We, we still need to understand their context for use. What are their risks and concerns such that the design of the solution factors in the human engagement as part of the solution. So I, I always talk about, you know, there's, you can be technically correct and effectively incorrect, right? It's all the math part is right, but it's, it's ineffective because the human adoption piece wasn't really understood. So talk to me a little bit about what you think about that with, with the trust and adoption angle here.
1: Uh, Sure. So now are you talking about it from getting the end user to trust the data or how to get the data so that the user can trust it?
0: I'm talking about simply in, in the last mile where someone is going to sit down and interact with whatever the output of the the quote, the uh. data science project is, am I willing to use this? Uh, and again, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm t- I tend to think more in terms of enterprise uh, data products, things like this. Am I willing to use this? Do I understand it and trust it enough versus the old way I do things, you know, or whatever came before? Got it.
1: Yeah. Um, so when you're designing stuff and I mean, AI right now, you know, the first, as soon as you say AI to a customer, the first thing they think of is Terminator. Um, and so the <laughs> trust level goes down. Um, I think it's, it's very uh, interesting to see what some of the big companies have done. Um, say like Apple, they won't use the term AI. They won't use the term machine learning in any other products. Um, you'll see uh, they're, their chips. They call them neural engines instead of anything to do with AI. Mm-hmm. I mean, so building the trust, uh, part of it is trying to separate out reality from movies. Mm-hmm. So if you can just provide assistance to whatever you know the user is doing, you don't have to call out that this is machine learning or anything like that. And that's a very good first step as far Mm -hmm. as building the trust. And then, you know, as they accept that, then you can, it's, it's very much a staged process. So you just add more and more features and as the trust builds. Sure. I I think a really good example of this is Tesla with their self-driving cars. They Mm -hmm. have rolled it out very, very slowly just because that's a very big trust. (laughs) Right.
0: Yep. No, I, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, it, it's funny in the, in the enterprise space, you know, and even the startup. I think one of my my listeners was telling me how you know, eighty to ninety percent of all funded startups right now have you know AI or machine learning is deeply you know, a theme, or it's literally in the title of the company right now. Business users, I I see it. They're when they're buying software, it's like everyone's jamming it into their their marketing stuff. The consumer end, though, the end users, I'm not sure. As you said you can see the opposite end of that, right? With Apple really avoiding some of these kinds of words. So ultimately I think when the steam, you know, when the smoke clears a little bit from all this stuff, it's still going to come back down to those design things we all know about, right? It's not about, let's, we need a social version 2.0, you know, the web 2.0 or whatever, you know, all that hype's going to blow over at some point and it's going to be back to, does this thing, this solution help me do the work that I need to do? Does it make my life better? it's going to come back to that stuff that designers are focused on, uh, all the time. But I really think that trust and adoption thing is really important because of the probabilistic nature of, of these solutions, right? They're not always going to spit out the same thing all the time. We, we, we don't manually design every single experience anymore. We don't always yeah. know what's going to happen. And so it, it's a system, um, that we need to design for.
1: No. And so, um, you know, the, that's one of the big things is, uh, consistency You know, you're Mm -hmm. going to build trust, the more you can build consistency. And one of the things um, when I'm designing a product, uh, when I talk to the developers, I always say, okay, so, you know, I want you to predict before you build the model, what's a really good answer that you think is going to come out? And then what's a, you know, say that the machine learning model goes in the completely the wrong direction and it spits out a really bad Mm -hmm. thing. Um, And then when I do user testing on both of those, I can... You know, actually see how the user responds, and mm-hmm. if they're not, you know, you can see the trust get take a hit when you, they get the bad answer. And so you need to be able to uh, design the experience so that when that bad answer comes up, that the flow of the models, the you know, it allows the user to go back and you know change their mind or you know they there's are, recovery
0: of some kind exactly built yeah, in it, yeah.
1: They, they can uh, they don't have the problem uh, they're not stuck with it.
0: right, right. I'm curious when you do those tests, you know I, I had talked about this on another uh, episode of my show, you know, asking some uh, you know fairly well known data scientists whether they ever prototype without building out these solutions because when we're doing predictions, we can come up with mockups and prototypes that don't need any data science behind them. We can predict outlier responses to test reactions right is that how you do it do you do you come up with some wild outlier answers some kind of in the ballpark answers and then you kind of look at those how people are reacting to it and then adjust accordingly
1: um so you're talking about like doing a like uh, how to do prototyping and stuff
0: yeah like like being able to move quickly like how how can we learn quickly and you're saying show me what a what a really awesome answer a high value answer would look like versus a a Complete failure right or even probably something that could be really risky uh, Looking, Yeah, how do how so do you, you know.
1: it depends on? Um, the situation of course, you know how um, How hard it is for them to build the model? Um, of course, you know, as soon as they build a model, they're gonna want to ship it And so that's all another oh, that's a whole another problem, mm-hmm. uh, you know, moving from the prototype model to a production model mm-hmm. so if if they can't predict, um, you know, it, it it really depends if they're just doing a new version of a model, it's pretty easy to predict on mm-hmm. what the accuracy that they're shooting for. Mm-hmm. But if, if they can't predict it and they have to build a model, what, uh, what I've found that works for me is that you have them choose one really narrow persona type mm-hmm. and to, you know, tweak the model only for that one persona. Mm-hmm. And then when you do the user testing, it's real easy to bring in, you know, twenty something. That does you know whatever job and you know it likes whatever things so that all of the recommendations can be in this very narrow range, and then that is able to test, uh, you know, and that way you don't have to worry about building the entire model. And so it's a lot easier to get the accuracy if you can tweak down the persona range so that it's very narrow.
0: Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. So we sort of touched on this one, but. The I think designers have a role in addressing the how can we use ML to do X question, right? So this is the pro this gets back to our 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 leads, our design leads really trying to go up the ladder into the problem finding space. So one thing I was gonna ask you what you thought about this, you know, this I have an acronym that I like to think about with this, which is PICA. And it's these different verbs to help teams think about how they might use uh, machine learning particularly, and it's predict, classify, augment, and automate. And it's looking at, you know, the human's work or the jobs or the things they're doing and figuring out, are there places we can use these verbs to help their uh, experience? And then the I in Pika is ignore, which reminds us that sometimes we need to ignore machine learning entirely and not use it because <laughs> it's not the right hammer for the, for the nail is that how you like to think about it as well when you, I don't know if you've been in this situation where teams yeah. feel the itch, like there's something to do here that we, that that machine learning oh, yeah. could be valuable for, but we need that objective lens. And yeah. so how, how do you go through that?
1: Um, so, yeah, no, I, I've, uh, I've come across this. A lot of the time it's, uh, you know, some uh, there's a stakeholder that's saying we're collecting all this data. It's costing us money. I want to be able to use it. Right. And so... I usually have a little bit simpler um so they have the list of all of the um things that they're collecting, so all the different classifications of things that they're collecting as far as data goes mm-hmm. and then uh what I usually do is I take a list of all the problems uh that their users are reporting, mm-hmm. so anything that their customers have a problem with, you know we're trying to track that stuff anyways, mm-hmm. so we can pull that and we have a and then it's literally just trying to draw lines between the two, right? And you know, if the if it's a prioritized list of the problems, you know, then it it does a really good job because I mean, there's usually a lot of parallels, but it's usually fixing problems that are really low on the the problem priority mm-hmm. list, yep. And so that does a really good job of the putting those, you know, the, they get a lot lower rating as far as uh, in the scrum meetings, I should say,
0: right. Right. Yeah, and I think I, this also g- gets back to things that hopefully you know product design uh, leaders are doing, which is also looking at you know organization goals, quarterly goals, things like this, and and making sure that the the work here, particularly on projects that can be you know months to even years long, you know we're not we're not just going through you know a tech rehearsal, right? Where where we're trying to use this technology, and at best we we learn something about how to. How to build a, a pipeline and deploy a model, but deploying a model isn't a solution for a person, right? That that's an engineering milestone. It's not yeah. an outcome, uh, and so you know I think designers typically understand this that we need to look at our business objectives as well as you know what the customers want to do. Uh, but in general, this problem finding thing, right? It, it, it's it's understanding what the tech can do, but keeping it back to as you said, what what are some of the known issues that that exist now and and Providing that leadership there, so we don't approach it as a data problem. I don't know. I, I feel like that's with the data science, uh, t, you know, persona. Um, it's a data. It's a data problem a lot of the time, and I'm always like, no, it's not. It's a human problem, which may have a data problem, but that's a technical issue uh, that that's its core, right? When we're using these technologies, but that's not really what it's about. I don't. Do you agree with that? <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, no. It's uh, it, it like you were saying, you know, it, it's the 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 hammer and nail. Everything's a nail, you know, right. kind of problem. Right. But yeah, no. When you do get one of those where they ha- are collecting data and they do match it up to a problem that is high on the list, mm-hmm. those those are real happy moments because they they <laughs> everyone's happy. You're solving a bad problem for the customer, and they right. get to it's and it's for free because they already have the data.
0: So. Right. Exactly, exactly. The fourth one I I wrote down was a, a, another place that designers can be helpful here is is getting the you know the Star Trek experience is one of my guests kind of talked about it. Envisioning I call it envisioning the grandchild, right? So it's like what's that two generations out version of your product? What what might it look like? What is that futuristic thing? But also starting to think about that you need data to do to do a lot of these things. We will need data and I think when designers can be thinking ahead to that and not, not just creating fictitious type, you know, way outside, you know, you know, visions of the future, having some kind of context about we will need data for this and where might that come and what concerns might arise when I do show a prototype of, of a, a grandchild of our current products. What What are some of the downsides to that as well that we need to think about? How do you think about like, future prototypes and, and things oh, yeah. like that. No, uh,
1: it's very much a product map. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you start with the blue sky. If I could pre- create a perfect experience mm-hmm. for the user, you know, what would that be? Okay, right. then you break it down. Well, what data do we need to be able to create that experience? Well, most likely you're not collecting half that data right now. Right. So, the only way that you're gonna be able to start collecting that data is if you give the users something. Right. So, you know, what are, what are you collecting now that you could start Uh, that you would make it so that the customer would want to use it. So, you know, Mm -hmm. the MVP or whatever, and then how can you slowly expand that to where you're collecting the data that you need to uh, improve your product to eventually be able to get to that blue sky thing where you're able to collect all the data you need to give the ultimate experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: And do you think, do you think it is the designers? I mean, I'm sure you've had this thing, right? Like, should designers code? Like, I do not want to have that conversation with you here. <laughs> my my short answer is, no, you don't need to code. You should know conceptually how to code, and you should know what an API is, and you should know what these languages can do, even if it's not your job to do it. Because it helps you understand the medium you're working in and it helps you work better with technical people. And overall, it's just like we're asking our stakeholders to give a shit about usability and testing and user experience and research and all this stuff. It works both ways. Like th- th- that's our oh, tool yeah. set. Their tool set are models and data pipelines and all this other stuff. So how much is it uh, the designer's responsibility to think about data collection and 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 in the context of AI?
1: Um, I mean, it's it's the more tools you have, the better the job you can do. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm very open to it. And I mean, one of the things that I feel is very important as a designer is, is that you definitely want to train your developers and your data scientists on the best practices of UX. Mm-hmm. And it seems kind of selfish that if I'm going to be training them on how to do my job, that Right. And vice versa isn't also true. Right. So uh, definitely, you know, the more you know, and, and so like I was saying earlier, you know, the more different machine learning models, you know, you might not know how to implement them, but if you know what they are, what data they need, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's going to help you with the product map too.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, 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 and I think, you know, if you're just getting started with this, you know, you'll probably get that exposure over time and it may, I think it can be hard until you've gone through a process to contextualize some of these things. So it's not oh, like yeah. you can't do any work until you've learned all of this pre-work. It's always a journey, right? And we're all starting at different places so you can still get in there. But I think being open to the fact that this data stuff, it's like pixels. It's like the new pixel. And yeah. we need to think about that just as much as we think about screen layout. And, you know, I think you had commented in one of your episodes about like, we don't need to recreate another, you know, table GUI for the rest of our lives. I'm going to keep coming <laughs> up with tables, right? Like this, we don't need to spend this. There's a better use of designers time, right? There's bigger yes. problems to work on uh, than, than, than that. And as much as I love, you know, beautiful renderings and and really getting the, the pixels right and the rounding of the corners and which radius and the fonts and all this kind of stuff, you know, a lot of that is not there those aren't problems anymore
1: (laughs) yeah well and but i mean that's the point that we are in the the grand scheme of things is Mm -hmm. that you know this is machine learning is still very much a research endeavor Mm -hmm. Um, you know everything is a custom solution right now Mm -hmm. and uh, definitely you know that's uh, one of the things that i do have for my podcast is i don't want to i mean it just it can't survive if it stays everything is a custom solution. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking that uh, because this is all research, I would say that not even the developers are experts. You know, Not mm-hmm. everybody can know everything sure. because this is such a new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the reasons that I was attracted to this space is because I found that everyone's really humble because there is so much unknowns. There's a whole lot of stuff that when I talk to the developers and I ask them, why is it working a certain way? and they don't know. It's just, it does. So right, uh, yeah, they're working in the same space as us. Um, you know, we don't know everything, neither do they.
0: Right, right. Let's move on to the next one. The next one I wrote down is this overall topic of ethics and, and, and community as I like to think of it, right? So second order consequences to the products and services we build and, and particularly edge cases, right? And I, I forget who said it, you, you probably know, but someone said, you know, edge cases, define the edges of what you actually care about or something like that, which I, there was some great quote, I, I don't remember where I saw it, but I was like, wow, that really sticks, right? Like when you say that's an edge case, then that's the edge of what you're saying you care about. Uh, you've yeah. talked about, I've seen in your, your episodes about accessibility issues with this uh, where models kind of round stuff out and they don't factor in uh, what could be perceived as outliers when they're not necessarily outliers. So could you talk a little bit about second order consequences, ethics, accessibility. Uh, what, what's your take on this?
1: So, I mean, when I've done an accessibility design, that's always something that, uh, like you were saying, it, it a lot of um, stakeholders like to focus on the core uh, user base. And mm-hmm. so that's usually uh, something that I have to upsell is, you know, if we think about accessibility, this is going to expand our market by 10 to 15%. Mm-hmm. And that's usually a pretty good, you know a convincing factor Mm -hmm. the problem like i've said before is that machine learning it averages everything and so accessibility can kind of be left by the wayside Mm -hmm. so to be able to include accessibility and i mean as machine learning gets into the enterprise space this is definitely something that's going to have to be covered better than right now Uh, you know for the consumer space You can throw machine learning models out there all day long and just say, oh, well, that's not part of our customer base. That doesn't really work for enterprise or government uh, Mm -hmm. solutions. Right. So uh, one of the hot topics right now is called uh, ensemble models, where Mm -hmm. you take a bunch of little models and you put them together. Mm -hmm. This does a really good fix for fixing for accessibility because Mm -hmm. you can just create a specific model that is only for you know, uh, low vision users or, uh, you know, uh, speech impaired user, you know, depending on whatever your solution is mm-hmm. and include that. And so that if someone has that accessibility need that there's already
0: a model there for them to use. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. And talk to me about your, your thoughts on, uh, you know, ethics gets thrown out there. It's kind of this Amorphous thing. Uh, I actually just uh, interviewed Kenneth Bulls on my show uh, the author of future ethics Who I I think is a great voice in this space about what designers need to be thinking about here How do you approach this like do you use some of his tool sets? He talks about like the front page test Which I love, uh, you know where it's like would you like to see this on the front page of the news if it went south? Like would you be okay with your family and your friends knowing that you participated in building a solution that showed up with this article on the front page of the New York Times or whatever, I think that's a great way of thinking about it. The designated dissenter role, right? Where your job is to kind of be the naysayer uh, and to think about how could this go wrong? What what are your, some of the ways you think about uh, ethics and, and community?
1: Yeah, yeah it's um, definitely, it's one of those best practices kind of things of how, how you can alter the process more than, uh, this is one of, you know, it's definitely one of the things that you have to, Uh, Get in at the very beginning as opposed to at the very end, you know Mm -hmm. uh, who you're impacting who is this going to be touching that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but one of the ways that I found it uh, People are motivated by money. Um, So if you can work this into a performance review, so you know, how can they measure? the how they're affecting the users and I found when that is part of their performance review, uh, people, seems, uh, they really start to care about it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, that helps.
0: A sixth one I talked about, or I had in my, my ideas to talk to you about, uh, understanding the full system, right? And, and this starts out at like the point of data collection, transformations of the data, what training data is being used, testing data, all this kind of stuff. Um, even the experience of, I think the Google pair, uh, researchers, their toolkit talks about factoring in even the design of the Raiders experience, right? So if you're, if you need to manually collect data, like the, is this a cat, is this a car or not? The example I give is like, well, if you show them a picture of an SUV or a truck, is that a car? If, if the answer is, is it a car or not? Well, it's, it's a vehicle, right? It's, some people might say, yeah, it's a car because it's not a tree. And so right at that point, you've, you've introduced bias into the data. And so part of the, to me, the UX thing is also looking at all these different points along the line that feed into the overall last mile, the GUI that finally ends at the very end of the process. Um, do you agree with that? Or do you think, that's not oh, really yeah. our job. That's more the data scientist job. Or- um, well,
1: so it depends on how you view your job. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're looking at the whole user experience, or I, I, uh, even one step bigger, is you know the whole customer experience. So from right. the first touch of yep. with the brand all the way you mm-hmm. know through the whole life cycle. the intent of why they were collecting the data is so important. Uh, just because. One that I've always heard is you know, a veterinarian collecting data about dogs is going to have different intent on what data is collected as opposed to you know, a breeder. And so, Mm -hmm. the data that's collected, if the source of that data is going to affect the accuracy of your model in certain ways, um, based on say, if it's about a dog's health, you know, that you're going to get a lot, a whole lot more the intent is going to be more health-based if it was a veterinarian that was collecting that data. So that's something that you need to look at as the UX person. Uh, but also how that data is transformed as it goes through the system. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can't, you know, I'm not expecting everyone to be able to read through the code, but if you can storyboard the model, um, you know, with the developers and, you mm-hmm. uh, I usually try and do this as just um, some kind of a design session with the developers themselves, and a lot of the times I will find holes that they hadn't thought of in their model that need to be caught. So I'm, you know, as suddenly those become uh, bugs that they need to be uh, fixed anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you help? Uh, you talk about kind of doing this in a design jam format. Can you give give listeners, uh, especially designers who tend to be visual, What's an example of one of those bugs that you might have discovered recently that became something that needed to be paid attention to?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really, it's when you're creating the model, Mm -hmm. you have to make sure that the data gets massaged in the right way and you have to catch uh, a lot of, so you have to catch the zeros and you have to, you know have all the different groups represented. And so each group is a different model. And as and then you have one big model that kind of chooses which model to use in different circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really a matter of, you know, if the person came in through this way, then we know this stuff about them. So they are most likely to get this model. Mm-hmm. But there's also this other circumstance that can affect it. I, d- I don't know how to really... Uh, make it universal it's it's i mean think of it like mapping out the user journey Mm -hmm. and it's pretty much it's just that that you're doing but it's it's within the model itself
0: right right no that's 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 helpful um for sure the uh the next one i wrote down here was tuning right so probabilistic applications don't spit out the same thing every time so we we sort of touched on this earlier but do you agree that there's kind of this tuning phase from a UX perspective too, right? When we see in in, in a test an unexpected answer or an unexpected reaction to a prediction that's come out, how is that handled in the software? Is there recovery? Is there a way to, you know, I was playing around. Is there a way for me to undo the playing around so I don't start getting these strange You know, recommend like I never listened to rap and now I just tried it out with rap, and then it's like now I'm getting all these rap recommendations, and it's like, oh, how do I get back? Yeah, that's all
1: you get. Uh, What do you think about tuning? So, recovery is definitely important. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, it it really depends on what is on the line by the machine learning making this recommendation. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I've found that helped recently was that not only was it supposed to show the degree of accuracy that it believed that the machine learning model was recommending the correct thing, but then it also showed a different percentage of the degree of accuracy that it thought it was representing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And so, but you know, this was for a very important choice. So you wanted the user to be able to either take or deny that recommendation with as much information as possible. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the first one with the degree of accuracy, uh, that's, that's pretty much any machine learning model does that, Mm -hmm. but the degree of accuracy that the machine learning model thinks that it's wrong, that's not normally the way the machine learning models are built. Mm -hmm. So including that information required the developers to build a whole nother model that was listening to the first model, Mm -hmm. but, Given those two numbers, that really helped with the uh, user journey, and that the user was able to make a more intelligent decision with that data.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know, for I'm guessing some of the designers is maybe getting a little bit uh, a little heavier technical. So I I think it's worth stating that if you're new to some of these technologies, with especially with uh, when we talk about a machine learning model, right it's not going to come up with a complete wild surprise. It, it, it can't factor in a huge change that has nothing to do with the world that that model was focused on. It's really, it's really good at the one thing it was trained to do. And, and you've been yeah. talking about how you chain these together with other models that might predict a different thing. And then eventually there's some type of output that the user is going to be presented with. So there's n- this general intelligence thing is not what we're talking about here. It's not going to, come up with a surprise (laughs) that's not how it works and so designers need to realize that it's not just throw all this data at it and then magically somehow data scientists get the wand out and then this it's going to come up with these cool ideas they're they're kind of dumb in a way it's very much statistics driven and very specific and narrow uh and so that's why you know we're talking about multiple models and this kind of thing
1: so yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. Um, you know, this isn't like the movies. Uh, you know, being in the design side of it, you're constantly amazed at how dumb computers can be. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it's yeah. So it's always remember that um, you know any machine learning model is never going to make a recommendation for something that it already hasn't seen. So you can look through all the data, and you, that'll give you all of the edge cases mm-hmm. right there, mm-hmm. and you know, if your data set is too small, then that might be limiting what the recommendations are possible that your machine learning model can actually give.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This kind of gets into the next, the next one, number eight for me, which was model transparency. Uh, and so, or it's sometimes this is called model interpretability or explainable AI. Uh, and this is, this is how well, you know, our interfaces can actually explain why did it say 82% was the number? Why did it say turn right? What factors went into that recommendation? This doesn't always matter, right? Like there are certain times where I don't care why it's like, why should I watch this movie instead of that movie? Do I care? I mean, Netflix, it doesn't give me a justification for every movie that it thinks I want to watch, but should you get this loan or not? If you're in an enterprise, (laughs) like in a bank, uh, sorry, you don't get the loan. That's the answer from the loan officer. No explanation. It's just we fed your information into a computer and said no. So yeah. to me, this is very much where designers have a role, right? It's like what what type of transparency is needed, not just for risk and compliance reasons, which is a good reason. And you know, I think GDPR is definitely a factor here, right? But what do you think about that? I mean, talk to me about model transparency here and interpretability and the role of designers.
1: Oh, yeah, and I mean, I think this goes right back to the very first thing that we were talking about where You have to solve for the problem first, you know, how how much of a problem is this for the user? You know, what are the consequences for the user Based on what your recommendation is Mm -hmm. Like you're saying if this is a movie choice, eh, that's fine. They can just ignore it but you know, if you're telling somebody that they don't get a loan, there could be a lawsuit involved. And so, you know, there's a, there's one machine learning model where it's completely uh, transparent as far as all the decision it makes. The problem is is that it can't make as good recommendations as the ones that are black boxes. Right. And so trying to balance between those two extremes, that is something, you know, that it, it depends on the laws that are involved and, uh, what the customer needs and the budget of the product and what data you have. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's tons of variables that go into, uh, every part of it.
0: Sure. Uh, I'll also add to, I I mean, I had a whole episode of my show about this where I think the title was like, when is 60% better than 85% uh, accurate? And, and the context for this was that for certain situations 60% 60% accurate model in an, in a solution, an application, whatever it is, that gets deployed and put into the business or into the hands of a user might be better than waiting six months to get an 85% accurate model when that decision doesn't need to be that informed. It, it could be something where you're you're transitioning from wild-ass guessing, where people have no idea. They just currently, either that or they have to do a tremendous amount of you know, mental math and looking at analytics and all this kind of stuff to inform a decision, now they can get a 60% accurate decision. That may be enough in some cases to move the business forward or move the user experience forward. So I think that's something that designers should be looking out for, particularly, and you tell me if you agree with with certain data scientists, this is a very academic discipline. I, I think a lot yes. of them want to create uh, very accurate models and accuracy is seen as this like, thing that you strive to have a write a paper about it or whatever when in the business contest yeah it's not it's not the holy grail for the customer necessarily or the business so we have to kind of think about our MVP mentality shipping fast when it's uh, appropriate moving things along and and learning right and getting that feedback early to justify it is it worth spending three months to get from 82 to 87% accurate what does that mean for everybody for the business for the customer is it worth that investment and you know this much compute resources? This all this extra data we need to get or whatever it may be. So,
1: so um, definitely, uh, you know that's something that you want to do at the very beginning. Um, you mm-hmm. know when you're uh, doing the initial design of the product, you want to figure out what the metrics are that you're going to be measuring success by, mm-hmm. because like you were saying, you know users aren't going to notice a three percent better accuracy you know, you, you need to focus on the whole journey, um, you know, right. it's uh, mobile's done a really good job of this, uh, where it used to be that they wanted all the data up front and now they've, you know, most mobile apps change it so that they only um, ask for data when they need it. And right. so it makes it so it's a much better journey, but they don't know as much about you up front. And so right. it's, it's the same thing.
0: Right, right. <clears throat> Cool. Um, a couple more here. Uh, in terms of like, how how might I go out and move forward? We kind of talked about how do we find problems and and use cases to use to use this, or I should say that since that's not really the goal, how do we manage that conversation and have that conversation? Uh, so one of these is um, looking at your product and thinking about the concept of in, injecting intelligence. Uh, so small prototypes of little features. So if you think about like you know when I'm typing in uh, Google Docs, right, and, and, and I'm just writing, like I'm writing my notes here and it's predicting the words that I should write and I can just hit tab and it will accept the recommendation that comes out. So that might be something where it's like, well, we have a lot of typing, uh, you know, there's a lot of data entry required in our service. So thinking about that as a small piece of intelligence that adds some type of value for the customer, that can also be part of the role of the designer. So it's not, it's not like, let's build the AI version of our product that's not the thing. It's where's there a pain or a problem that we might be able to use some decision support or intelligence to make that experience better. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Like injecting intelligence in little bites and pieces.
1: Oh yeah, no. So like we were saying before, you know, when you have the ultimate product map, you know, so perfect example is the text recommendations. So every time you either accept or deny the recommended text. It's collecting the data on whether that was accurate or not, and so it's learning how good the recommendations are in real time. So it's it's collecting some very good data for that. Mm-hmm. Now, based on being able to collect that data, you know, could you include some new feature, uh, you know, that would expand even further down the road, you know, to give the user more what they want it really depends on what data you need and so you that's why you need to map this stuff out so so much uh, you know in the very beginning Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: cool good advice the uh the last one i wrote down here uh and this is i was particularly thinking about tech companies uh but this could go beyond that too is that you know for, for a lot of us that have worked in the software industry our our kind of power trio has been product management software engineering lead, and some type of design lead. And then you, I, I always talk about these rings, right? Like that's the closed circle. And then the next ring out, you might have some domain experts and, you know, some front end de- developer or prototyper, a researcher. But at its core, there were these kind of three functions there. So with AI, is, is it necessary now that we add a fourth function to that? Like if our, especially if our product was very centered around this, and that's the role of the data scientist. And so they're going to, it's, it's no longer a triad anymore. Is that how you think of it? Um, that there's now there's really needs to be four roles here that are really kind of critical to this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I see it more as like uh, jobs that need to be done and, mm-hmm. you know, everybody can do so much. So it depends on what you're trying to produce and you have so many tasks mm-hmm. um, because this is such an early, you know, uh, products are so early, there's been so much crossover. You know, I've found myself doing a lot of PM work and a lot of uh, UX and research. And, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, I've had to wear a lot of hats, but you're just going down the list of things that need to be done. You can start checking things off. And uh, I found when I even when I've talked to the developers, um, they split up the data collection and the model creation, model optimization, and the model serving, you know, there is a bunch of different jobs that they have to do. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot of it is, do they know, you know, do you know how to do it? Can you do it uh, effectively? If someone's just, you know, looking over your shoulder to make sure you're doing things right. That's one thing that I found is for this is that uh, the title's start to matter less because there's a whole lot more blending and mm-hmm. i think that things will start to get firmed up a little bit more in the future but right now it's it's pretty um gray area as far as what exactly your title is
0: so let, let me rephrase this i i'm not talking about there's that there's necessarily four bodies in the room i'm saying uh, okay. that these responsibilities they they it's kind of the, there's a hub and a spoke to, to me this kind of Uh, product management is kind of the center and you have all these spokes uh, where product may or may not be a commercial software product. It could be an application or whatever the the value is in terms of the business, the stakeholder, the customer. Uh, And there's these spokes and roles that need to be factored in, particularly at the creation of the birthing of this, the strategic part upstream. It's not to say, you know, data engineering is not important and thinking about all the infrastructure that needs to be there. But do you agree that, the, that at least in my experience, this trio, I see it constantly with tech teams. It was product engineering and, and user experience, whether or not it was three bodies or not. But I feel like you can't, you know, data science, even for the designers listening, you know, data scientists, a lot of them don't call themselves software engineers. And I think sometimes I imagine some designers probably lump them together with engineers because it sounds technical. Uh, and and they don't think the same way. You know, people with data science backgrounds have much more focus on math and statistics, uh, and and they're thinking about things differently than maybe a software engineer is. Yeah. But they all can contribute different things to the the strategy about the solution that's being created. Uh, so I don't know. Okay. That, that's more what yeah, I yeah. No, that about. that
1: makes sense. Um, definitely, uh, you know, to create a good product, you know, it's going to require a lot of data, mm-hmm. and so having somebody or having the, you know, really thinking about how you're going to massage that data and clean the data, you know, that needs to be done. So having somebody that can do that Mm -hmm. is very much, it's something that is going to be a requirement that Mm -hmm. isn't normal for, you know, any other type of software being built. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd also say too, I'm going to, I, I, I always feel like is it bad to generalize, but I, I'm going to generalize for the design audience here, and 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 state that you know in my experience, like speaking at conferences with you know data science conferences and analytics things, this audience tends to be uh, the uh, as a class of people, a lot of them tend to be very STEM-oriented people. Um, they're very technical. Uh, a lot of them like to to get very focused on the technical problems. It's it's kind of similar to engineering in that and the human part here is, is the part that I think designers can really help with, the empathy and the, and the connecting their technical work back to how it is experienced by someone who's going to receive it. They need that help, they often want that help, And and, and we can learn a lot, you know, we quote, the designers can learn a lot Uh, from them, they can help us understand things like bias in ways that we may not be thinking about it. And and so together, it's a good soup. When, When we're all in this, the kettle together, the pot, uh, we can make a much better soup together. So that's I don't know that's kind of my take. I don't and it's not to say there's like everyone's STEM and they're all nerds and all that. I've met so many cool, like quirky, awesome, artsy, weird data people. And even I one of the guys I, I met at one of these conferences was telling me is like, no, data people and engineers are not the same. They're a completely different breed. <laughs> and I see I can kind of see it now after having folks in this area. Uh super sharp, really interesting. It's a it's a fun I, and i am totally stereotyping about a huge class of people here but i think there's there's something there where it's there's a complementary skill set if we really kind of generalize the designer and the data scientist together i think we can do better things
1: definitely you know there's definitely this wide range of people but um i think part of the part of the domain is that there is a whole lot of math involved you know being able to be, build a machine learning model it's all math. It's all statistics. And so somebody that understands that they're going to be able to at least be able to shift their mind into that mode at some point to be mm-hmm. able to think statistically how to, you know, do the recommendations or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it is something that you do need to, uh, you know, as, mm-hmm. as when you're designing, you got to think a lot bigger picture than more than just the model itself.
0: mm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Do you think, do you think all designers need to take statistics to, to work in this field going forward or do we not, is it like, no, yes, no, maybe,
1: well, I suck at it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I think that, uh, so all the developers that I've talked to, their description is basically the human brain is not built for statistics. So Mm -hmm. it's not something that you have to feel bad that you're bad at basically anyone that's human isn't and it's a matter of memorization Mm -hmm. so uh, again you know it's one of those tools um i am desperately trying to get better at statistics um i i know all the tools but uh, you know i forget them and i have to you know look them up of of how to do the math every time i need to do something um Mm.
0: Well, I'm glad uh, you're doing it because I'm certainly not doing <laughs> the math part. I will interject something really quick for, for designers that are curious about this. Uh, maybe you have a favorite link. Uh, the Seeing Theory Project from Brown. So the URL is seeing-theory.brown.edu. It's a visual introduction to probability and statistics. So if you just kind of want an over, a quick overview with pictures, which I know designers love, and even if you're not, like, even if you are technical, this can be a great refresher for a business person who's, you know, working with data science teams to to see these concepts. So I don't know if you have a favorite yeah. that you like.
1: Um, so I would recommend measuringu.com. Okay. Um, that's, uh, so it's a, uh, somebody named Jeff Soros. He's kind of an expert at doing the statistics for mm-hmm. UX. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does a really good explanation of uh, different things that you need to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it has a really good, just kind of web pages so, so you can punch in numbers and get back the the percentages and that kind of help you if you're trying to do the planning for a lot of this stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. So I'll put those, uh, seeing theory dot brown dot edu and measuring, and then the letter u.com are those two yep. URLs. So I'll put those in the show notes. The last thing, so that, those are really the 10 things that I had. There, there's one other thing here, and, and that's, you know, what if you're a designer? What do you think? You're, you're a designer, and you know there's initiatives to use AI in the business. And, and by the way, it's probably coming. Even if you're not at a tech company, this is something that boards are, are asking CEOs and leadership what is our ai strategy and most of them don't know what it means they just know their competitors are probably doing something with it and they want to know what they're doing and here's a pile of money go hire some phd's and do something at some oh, yeah. point there's going to be an expectation of some results from that and i think designers can can help with this but let's say you know mark if you're if you're a designer working in a company where you know that mission is on the books like that this is a this is a goal How do you get involved if like you don't feel like any no one's asking for the designer to come and participate in these activities, but they're trying to maybe transform a back office, you know, whole process or something. And it's got all these touch points and they're going to start using machine learning to take care of a bunch of this work that used to be done by three or four people. And you're the designer. You can see how maybe it's not going to work or how it could be made really efficient. How do you how do you interject yourself into that? What do you, what do you think about how to get that trust or, or, um, you know, participation, to get the seat at the table. Yeah.
1: Um, so, uh, you know, you basically, you show what you can do for them. It can be something small and you just kind of, you got to build up trust and you're doing a sales job as far as what UX can do, you know, for the developers and for the PMs, uh, mm-hmm. or, or if you're working, you know, from the PM side, you know, you got to show, the bigger picture and uh you know it, a lot of, this is really easy when you're when you have when you're doing user testing you know you, people swearing at screens are very persuasive <laughs> so you, you you do a best of uh you know a bunch of clips and uh i found that to be very uh persuasive as far as um showing that there's a problem
0: and did you predict this the particular swears like before oh. you tested, <laughs> or <laughs> that would be fun. But yes, I mean we're back. We're back to our old stuff, right? We get get out the B roll footage, not in the oh, A yeah. roll footage, and 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 show show the pain, show show the gap. Um, but you know, my, my suggestion it, it, it it's similar. There, it's if you can change the conversation from how are we using AI to figuring out what is the What is the desired value or outcome not the output the model or the applications the output right but what is the outcome that we want that that thing to provide to the customer or to the business if you can talk about it in terms of that and say look we can get the model part right and we can fail at the outcome part i can help make sure that the outcomes are actually achieved and work with the team building the outputs and, and I think if you can talk about it in that language, you can get that seat at the table if that's if that is something that you're uh, having a challenge with all right yeah well, um, anything uh, else uh we this's been a fun conversation I've never yeah no, an it episode has. like this um,
1: <laughs> yeah no i um i uh actually I need to drop off um so
0: yeah, yeah, this is a good stopping point for me too. So, okay. um, but yeah, this is, uh, this is great, uh, talking to you and, uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you. So feel free to, uh, contact both of us. Uh, my email address is Brian at designing Mark, do you, how do people get in touch with you?
1: Probably the easiest way is on uh, Twitter. I'm just on Twitter at design for AI.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Well, follow him there. And, uh, for the Experiencing Data listeners, uh, thanks for chiming in, and uh, we'll be back uh, in a couple weeks. Sounds good. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag ExperiencingData. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.